Hi, this is Dr. Cesar Livar with another episode of the Way to College podcast. And, um, you know, one of the exciting things about the podcast has been uh, scouring the internet and, and the networks, my network of incredible folks uh, to identify guests. And uh, so my guest, my guest today, uh, I don't know, I don't, I don't know how I connected with my guest, I think it was over social media and then through just common uh, connections, network connections. But Felipe, why don't you introduce yourself to our uh, listeners out there? Uh, well, thank you so much for having me on. My name is Felipe Nojosa. I am a professor of history at Texas A&M uh, University and the newly appointed assistant provost for uh, HSI initiatives here at Texas A&M. Uh, I've been at Texas A&M for 13 years, and um, but I was born and raised in Brownsville, Texas, so I'm from the Valley, and I think that's maybe one of the reasons why we came together, right, the, the I, connection to the Valley. Yeah, I think so. I think so. So, Felipe, I always ask all of my guests, they say, um, if you had to go and identify a starting point in your educational journey, where would that be for you? 1996, no doubt. Um, I was working at Sears. Uh, in the hardware department, uh, selling paint. I had graduated high school in 1995, and um, I had just bought a brand new uh, Ford Ranger truck, beautiful truck, because I was making zero money at Sears, but I but I was <laughs> making money, and I thought, this is it, man. Like, I've arrived. And like every other teenager in Brownsville in the 90s, I was partying in Matamoros almost every weekend and had great friends and all of that. Um, but there was a point where I don't remember what it was, but there was a point where I thought, if I don't leave Brownsville, I'm not going to do anything. And granted, I didn't don't misunderstand me. I didn't have big dreams. It wasn't like I want to do this or that. I wanted to coach high school football and I wanted to teach history in high school. That's all I wanted to do in life. And so, but I knew that going to Texas Southmost College in Brownsville, as great of an institution as that was, I was not motivated to go to class. Uh, I just, it had, it, it was just high school all over again. You know, mm -hmm. I ran into the same people. We were all skipping class. We thought, let's just go to McDonald's and get some breakfast and get some coffee and, and we'll get out of here. Why does this even matter? Um, then I saw uh, in my church, in my home church, I saw an opportunity to participate in what they called an anti-racism drama team. And it would, they were advertising this for the summer of 1996. The idea, and the church was organizing it. This was a large nonprofit organization that was organizing this. And what they wanted were African-American and Latino youth mm -hmm. to come together go out to California and spend June, July, and August driving around in a van, putting on skits and dramas, talking about race and racism in our own lives and our own experiences. Blew my mind. Um, first of all, I'm a theater person, so I loved it. I wanted to do some theater. Second of all, uh, I wanted to get out of Brownsville. Um, I applied. Um, I bugged the office because the central offices for the organization putting this whole thing together. And I can send you a picture of our of the group, but the, the organization putting this team together was in Akron, Pennsylvania. They were part of the Mennonite, they called themselves Mennonite Central Committee. Still an active organization. You can look them up online, MCC, 
org. Great organization. They do a lot of social justice work um, mm-hmm. all over the world. I applied. I got in, and I spent the summer traveling with four African American women from Michigan, Virginia, New York, and Florida. One uh, Mexican uh, American or Mexican immigrant, mostly uh, woman from California, and another uh, Mexicano guy from California as well. So there were like seven of us. And that was the moment uh, that summer uh, did it for me. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, I could I could go on and on about what was significant. But just to get to the point, all of the people that I was on that tour gr- got, uh, group with. Um, we would spend every single day together. We would talk about how race and racism had impacted and shaped our lives. But most importantly, I was the only one in that group who did not have an upward trajectory. (laughs) So everybody else on the group was doing very well in college, second, Mm. third year, fourth year college students. They were doing very well. They were shocked to hear that my GPA was below 2.0. They were shocked to hear that I didn't really attend class and was not really motivated in college. Uh, And many of them would pull me to the side and say, you know, you've got to get your act together. You've got to you've got to do something. So it was that nudging from five women, by the way, four black women and one Mexicana. Um, And that summer of being in a van traveling from San Diego to Seattle to Tucson and back and forth, uh, talking about issues that uh, affect all of us. I fell in love with reading. I fell in love with these sort of deep conversations. I remember we went to go watch that film, A Time to Kill with Matthew McConaughey and uh, Sam Jackson. And we went and then we went to go have coffee afterwards. And we were talking about race and the South and black and white tensions and where Latinos fit in all of that. And I fell in love, man. I mean, I fell in love with the the world of ideas and That was the summer that changed my life. That that's a great story. Now I I, I want to. I mean, there are a lot of different ways we can go with. By the way, I I married that Mexicana on that uh, <laughs> team. I should just get that out there. Yeah, you can't you can't overlook that. Thank you. I just want to put that out there right now. <laughs> uh, the um, you know, to to at that point, you 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 join this troop, uh, this group, and. I, you know, I remember I grew up in the Valley. I'm from Elsa. And uh, I, I had, I'd, I'd never experienced overt racism until I left the Valley. Had you prior to that moment, had you experienced racism? And would you mind like telling us about that experience? What was, what was that? Well, without a doubt. So, I mean, I had grown up leaving the Valley because dad was a minister in the Mennonite church. And when you're a minister in the Mennonite church, there really aren't too many other Mennonite churches in the valley. There are a few, but not many. And dad would go, the the church would host all of these conferences in Kansas, Nebraska, Indiana, Illinois, uh, Oklahoma. And we would spend at least once every summer, there was some sort of church camp, church conference that dad would go to. Dad was one of the representatives for kind of the Latino wing of the Mennonite church in those days. So, you know, as kids, we would always go. And my first sort of 
coming to the realization that I was different from my white peers um, was realized. It was it was very clear to me that I was not white, you know, like that. And, yeah. and it, it, it was it was in terms of socioeconomics. It was in terms of culture. It was in the terms of language, the way that we spoke versus the way they spoke, the level of education that they had versus the level of education that my dad, my dad um, maybe finished sixth grade and that was it. Mm-hmm. Uh, my mom, the same thing. Uh, you know, my parents were migrant farm workers. Uh, all of these folks, there was a sense of generational wealth that they had, um, you know, experienced. And so the the sense of difference and being otherized, otherized came early in my life. Um, and then I'll never forget an experience that we had as a family. We took a road trip. I have five sisters and one brother. So we're big family maybe 94, maybe I was about to finish high school, something like that. We took a big family road trip uh, to Florida and I'll never forget stopping at, I don't know if it was a Denny's restaurant or kind of a diner kind of subset, but um, we could feel the tensions as soon as we walked into that restaurant, I could feel them. Mm -hmm. Um, And we had people staring at us. uh, And we finally had the waitress who told us uh, after we had finished our meal, that uh, it would be best if we would just leave quickly and quietly. Wow. Uh, and they were actually, um, you know, uh, basically saying, you don't even need to pay for the meal. Like there, I don't know if people had grown angry over the time that we were there. Wow. I don't know if we were just loud, whatever it was. Yeah. But I, I remember very, very vividly um, my brother who was older than me, I was in high school. My brother was already, you know, he's 14 years older than me. So he was the one kind of handling everything. And I just remember, you know, the sense of bewilderment, yeah. you know, of the kind of treatment that we got at that restaurant by the staff the entire time we were there. And then to be asked to leave at the end was kind of the, the moment of just kind of deep and complete shock. And we've always been... I don't know if this is just a Valley thing or what, but our family was always very kind of, maybe it was a religious thing too. Very compliant. Yes, sir. No, you know, no ma'am. Yes, ma'am. That sort of thing. And we walked out of there and I'll never forget that experience. Um, You know, it, it taught me earlier probably than some of my peers in high school or elementary school in Brownsville of kind of the realities with racism in society. So when I saw that opportunity that summer, um, this was maybe two years after that incident had happened. Um, I was ready for it. I, I wanted to to engage in those kinds of conversations. And I wanted to talk to different people about what that meant for us. Yeah. And I wasn't, I also was not um, naive to the kind of intra Latino tensions, the colorism that exists within our community. So even in our group of African-Americans and Latinos, we talked about black and brown tensions. Mm. We talked about, uh, what it would mean if, um, you know, one of my sisters would have brought an African-American home. What would, how would my parents react? It never happened. So I don't know, but yeah. we talked about all that stuff because we knew that race and racism was not the sole domain of white people, right? That, that this yeah. is something that can affect all of us. Yeah. You know, the, the interesting thing about your story and all of it's, is the complexities it, here you are, right? You, you, and, and before we jumped on, we talked about you, sort of your religious background. Yeah. And, and sort of the, the, 
you know, growing up with, with a social, like so as social justice being a part of your life, right. And being part right. of the church that you grow up in. So you've got that experience, that background, you have these experiences with race. And like you said, you're ready to have these conversations. What was going on with you? You're attending college. You said your GPA is below a 2.0. And, 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 and I asked that because I, you know, and, and this is, obviously biased towards my own experience, but, but with a lot of folks that I talk to college often provides that space where we can engage in those conversations where it's like, all right, now, now this is the space. Now it's a safe space. Folks want to have these conversations. I can ask these questions now. Was that not happening or what was going on with you at the time that? No, that was, that wasn't happening at all with me. Uh, I still had, I mean, I played high school football, man. I mean, I had that mindset, um, you know, uh, again, I had to make payments on my new truck, (laughs) (laughs) which by the way, one of my sisters, after I got back from, uh, my summer in 96 made me go and return the truck. She, she didn't make me, but she advised me deeply. She said, look, if you have aspirations to go to college, you can't have a car payment. You know, you've got to give this up because mom and dad don't have any money to help you. And you're not going to be able to be out there alone with a 300 or whatever dollar uh, payment. And then to pay for insurance too, as, as a, as a, as a male under the age of 25 at the time. Yeah. Um, so I, what it wasn't registering for me that knowledge equaled the kind of deconstruction of power in society, right. That I could take that, that the, the knowledge that I was, ignoring in history class that the knowledge that I was ignoring in English or in biology and whatever seminar or lab that I was taking that 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 knowledge could lead to a greater understanding of the way power works and power dynamics that didn't register for me until that summer of 96 right so I came back completely transformed you talk to any of my homeboys that I still talk to today yeah and they will tell you that I came back a different just a different person, uh, completely, almost unrecognizable, probably, because um, I went back to class. uh, I was intense. I was, you know, I wanted to talk. I had a whole summer of having these great conversations with people that lived in New York City, urban areas and rural areas. And the the woman that I eventually married, who was an, uh, an immigrant, worked in the fields in California, picking grapes and all of that. And I'm this kid from Brownsville that's just trying to find his way. And I came back, um, you know, just a whole different person. It didn't help my GPA necessarily because I had to, I had to learn how to write. I had to put in the work. I had to, I mean, it wasn't sort of an automatic where I started getting A's. Yeah. Um, but, but I started to care and I started to, to do my work and I started to go to class and I started to apply to colleges outside of Brownsville so that I could find a way to, to do something that I knew that, staying in Brazil wasn't going to allow me to do. Not that, I mean, I, I didn't have this, like, nothing good comes out of Brownsville or I hate the Valley. You know, I, yeah. I hear that a lot. I didn't yeah. have that. Uh, I mean, I love the Valley. I loved it then. And I love it now. I miss it dearly. Uh, for me, I didn't trust myself. It wasn't that mm-hmm. I didn't trust Brownsville or the Valley. I didn't trust me because I knew that eh, maybe six months into it, I was going to be like, yeah, I'm kind of reintegrating myself back into society and I'll be, I'll be fine. Yeah. But instead of trying to find out if I could get more hours to work at Sears so that I could pay for my truck, I was trying to cut hours so that I could go to the library 
and get my work done. And so that I could figure out what schools I was going to apply to and where I was going to go to college. Wow. So, so what then, where did you go? So that, that fall, I had gotten accepted to two schools um, in the Mennonite tradition, there are colleges like a, like a lot of church denominations that have their religious schools. Uh, I had heard about these colleges growing up in the church. And so I wanted to, I thought that's my way. That's where I'm going to go. Uh, these are really great places that I had visited as a kid. So I applied to Eastern Mennonite University in Harrisonburg, Virginia. And I applied to Fresno Pacific University in Fresno, California. Uh, I got into both on probation. Um, both of them said that I would need to get at least a 3.0 my first semester or or I would be kicked off like they just gave me one semester that was it Um, obviously I chose the west coast because that's where Maribel was I had met her that summer and so I decided to go uh, out west Um, and I had every uh, ounce of energy in my heart to leave And then when the time came, it kind of like the reality of it hit me, right? My parents, whose entire life was the church, um, you know, made, you know, very, I I mean, you know, like a lot of work. I don't even know if it was working class income. I, I, I think it was even less than that. I mean, they just made very, very little money. My mom didn't work. My dad was, you know, the minister of the church and, and didn't make much money. So it was very clear. And they told me, we're not going to be able to help you out at all. Not only could we not help you with tuition, um, I couldn't even pay the insurance, like the health insurance payment, yeah. which came outside of the student loan. I remember all of that. And I remember having to go to my brother and his family and his wife to ask them to sign a parent loan because mom and dad's credit uh, got turned, turned, they had such bad credit that they couldn't even get a federal student loan, parent loan, what they called a parent loan. Yeah. Wow. Um, um, They had bad credit with Montgomery Ward. Don't even get me started on how that could have ever happened. I don't remember one piece of furniture in the house or a lawnmower, (laughs) but apparently we got in trouble with Montgomery Ward credit wise. And so there was my brother got out a it was seventeen thousand dollars a year to go to school at Fresno Pacific, and my brother got a ten thousand dollar loan, and I got a another ten thousand dollar loan through you know loan program or whatever, and I paid my entire oh I got a minister's scholarship five hundred dollars because my dad is a preacher, and that's it. Um, and I remember, um you know, doing all of that. And I had one of my sisters who was really close to me. She was the only other sibling that had gone to college. She went to A&I in Kingsville Mm -hmm. and always pushed me. She's like, she always stayed on me. She's like, you got it. It doesn't matter how much money you got to borrow. You have to go. You have to go. You have to do this. So I really credit my sister Anna for encouraging me every step of the way um, not to give up and not to be shocked by the, the loans that I was signing every year. Yeah. Uh, and by the way, some of those loans were, you know, the kind that you had to pay interest while you're in college. Yeah. So, so think about that as a kid, not making any money, you've got to pay interest on that loan. And the loan that my brother got for me, I also had to pay interest uh, on that loan wow. while I was in school. 
Yeah. Um, when I traded in the Ford Ranger, I got a Mitsubishi Mighty Max, a little truck, um, <laughs> white. I called her Princess. And I'll never forget, um, you know, uh, it must have been August sometime, maybe early August 1997, that I was at my house on 2035 East Taylor in Brownsville. Um, that house steps from Matamoros. So you could walk to, do you know Brownsville at all? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. So if you know where the university is, I can yeah. walk to the university from my house, basically. So I lived oh. in that, in that area over there. And, um, I remember packing all of my stuff. I took I, the Instagram of the day. I got all of my Polaroids and I packed them up with me. Uh, and I've got a picture I can show you later if I find it of my roommate and in the background i hung all of the pictures of my family and friends from bronzeville i took my community with me when i got to fresno i took everybody with me and i put them up on my wall that's that was my wall decoration were pictures of home um i took a basketball and i took the little clothes that i had and i got in my mitsubishi mighty max and i left um the taylor house um in tears. It was my sister, Elizabeth, my sister, Liz, helping me pack and my mom. Uh, that's, that's, they were the only ones there. And my mom, I don't know. I mean, I love my parents to death. I, I don't think they understood what was happening. I think they were mostly like, no la vas a hacer y te vas a tener que venir y está muy difícil. They were worried about me, but they didn't know how to help me either. Yeah. The only way they could help me was to give me a Texaco credit card, a gas card. They gave me a Texaco gas card. I got in my Mitsubishi. Um, I said bye, and I drove to San Antonio from Brownsville. I have a good friend, San Antonio, that I hadn't seen since we were kids. I called him up. I said, hey, man, can I stay with He lived with his parents at the time. He was going to UT San Antonio. I hadn't seen him in five or six years. And again, before social media, like when you don't see each other, remember those days, you know, it was like you didn't you didn't meet anybody. Yeah. And I'm, I got to his house and he took me to eat dinner at Hard Rock Cafe on the Riverwalk. Um, he told me, he said, you're crazy. What are you going to do? You're going to Fresno. Do you know anybody? I said, I don't know anybody. Uh, I know Maribel. I'm going to go see her, try to see if this relationship will work. But my mother also told me que tenía una tía abuela. I had a, my grandmother's sister on my mom's side lived in Fresno. So I had a tía Chonita that was there. And my mom told me, acércate a ella, a ver si te ayuda. You know, get close to her and she can help you. We had dinner that night. We had great memories. And I got up at five in the morning and I hit the road on I-10 from San Antonio. And I made it all the way to L.A. and all the way to Fresno. And I never stopped. I didn't get a hotel. I slept in rest areas. And I was alone for the first time in my life. I was driving alone on interstates I had no familiarity with. Um, I had uh, $300 in my checking account. And I would use, I would stop at every Texaco that I found to put gas and buy some food. Yeah. And that's how I made it. And I got straight to my Tia Chonita's house. I landed there. I lived with her for a week. She was Mormon. <laughs> I don't know why that matters, but <laughs> strange to me. Yeah. Uh, and she told me, no te puedo ayudar mucho. I can't help you much, but you can come over every Thursday and I'll feed you dinner and you can do laundry. And because my parents couldn't go with me to Fresno to unpack and do the whole parent thing, 
I was alone. There was a dinner for all the parents of transfer students because I was considered a transfer student. And I invited my tia Chonita and I went to go pick her up in my little truck in Fresno, brought her to university, she attended, um, and it meant the world to me. It meant the world to me that my tia Chonita was able to be there with me and support me for the two years that I was there at at Fresno Pacific University. Life-changing, transformative years. Wow. (sighs) You're you're a history professor, so that's not too far off. I I mean, it, it is, but... I mean, you started off by saying you wanted to be a high school football coach and a history teacher. So get, getting there to, to Fresno Pacific history still. The rock no, I, no, I was an English major. Oh, and the, <laughs> the, 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 you know, I love to write and I love to read. And I grew up with a father that was an orator. Like he would, his sermons. And I saw dad reading the Bible all the time. And dad could articulate very well in, in, uh, I mean, better in Spanish, but to some extent in, in English too. And um, I remember that the admissions counselor at Fresno Pacific on the phone told me, look, based on your grades and, you know, what I'm seeing here on paper, I think you should consider another major. Um, this is a very difficult major. And frankly, I don't think that you will succeed. And he told me that on the phone. Um so here's this white admissions counselor <laughs> telling this young Mexican-American kid who, by the way, just got back from like a summer talking about race and racism. Yeah. And and for me, that immediately registered. Right. Rather than him saying, hey, look, you know, it's going to be hard, but we're going to support you. Yada, yada, yada. He wanted to push me into like kinesiology or like <laughs> sports or something like that. I don't know what it was. Yeah. And I thought, no, nah, that's not what I want to do. Um, my first semester at Fresno Pacific as intimidating. And by the way, my dorm was a lifesaver at Fresno Pacific because it was all the outcasts. Like (laughs) Fresno Pacific is a very wealthy university and they had very popular kids and well-off, very affluent, majority white institution. It was a predominantly white institution. But our dorm, there was another Chicano guy from El Paso who was there. My roommate was from Nigeria. Um, and the other white guys that were in there were all working class white guys that were on the margins of that university back yeah. then. So it was like this, this like motley crew of guys, man, in there. And, you know, the, the guy from um, from Nigeria, Kalechi, we ended up becoming best of friends. We got along so well. Uh, he was into rap and hip hop and he knew everything that was happening and he was really interested in the Chicano experience. And then I had Adrian, who was a Chicano from El Paso, who played soccer. They recruited him to play soccer. He hated it there. Oh, my goodness. He hated it <laughs> at Fresno Pacific. Um, and then all these other white guys that were like, um, you know, outcasts in their own uh, regards. And and it was a good place for me to land. Yeah. So that first year, I did not get below a 3.0. I think I'm got a. 3.4, or 3.5, my first semester there. And I'm going to tell you that the class that changed my life was a class called American um, Wilderness and Literature. And it was an English class where we met all that we met and we read the nature writers, Terry Tempest Williams, Edward Abbey, um, John Muir, of course, Sequoia being in the Central Valley in California. Mm-hmm. We read all of these fantastic books about people 
being monks in the desert and John Muir, the spirituality of Yosemite and all of that. And then at the end of the class, a biology professor took us to Yosemite National Park. We walked the same path that John Muir walked, um, you know, the environmentalist founder of the Sierra Club, all of that. And along the way, the biology professor would explain to us the plant life and the names of this and the names of that. And all I remember is thinking um, while I was there, I, you know, when we were preparing for this field trip, you had to have all these things. You had to have a sleeping bag. You had to have like money. You had to have like different things. And this was the fall, man. Like I had three jobs on campus. I was video recording soccer games. I was doing chapel with, because it was a Christian school. So I was doing chapel, helping the minister do some chapel. And then I was doing cleaning. I would clean like the gym at the end of events and things like that. So I had three jobs and I didn't have a sleeping bag. I didn't have anything, man. So the guys, everybody kind of pitched in and helped me out. And that kind of community Mm-hmm. Um, along with my, just my mind was being blown by all of these writers and to be out in nature was the most beautiful thing, um, uh, ever. And I never looked back, man, that summer or that fall of 97, I became a nerd. The grades got to A's, everything changed, everything changed. Um, I didn't know how to stop at that point. I didn't know how to stop. I loved it so much. Yeah. Um, I couldn't wait to get to class. I couldn't wait to read another book. I, I was so excited. Granted, I was doing this while getting phone calls from the financial aid office saying that my loan had been suspended and did I have an alternative? I was getting calls from my brother saying, we got a bill from the loan. You, you owe $100 on this interest payment. What are you going to do and how are you going to pay that? Um, and he was calling me on his way to work. Central time was, he's on his way to work at seven. It was 5 a.m. in California. He's calling me at five in the morning in my dome room. Um, So I was dealing with it, man. Like I was dealing with a lot of just kind of being alone and kind of having to, for the first time in my life, like I was thrown in it. It wasn't just like dealing with classes or finding a sleeping bag. It was like, I got to pay these interest payments. And the financial aid office keeps calling me saying, I haven't met my payment yet for the, yeah. for the fall semester. So um, I dealt with a lot that first year. Uh, I don't, the second year is like a blur to me, but that first year has never left me. And I think I was telling you earlier about the, the kind of issues that are resurfacing for me now, as I go with my son to visit colleges and universities um, and, you know, just kind of, I never dealt with that trauma. I never dealt with it in a significant way because I didn't know any better. It was like sink or swim. And, you know, I made it, but I didn't do it alone. I had, it was a great university. I had made, I met great friends. You know, I, I would only move my truck on Sundays. I would park it the whole week because I didn't have money for gas, but I would, on Sunday, I would go to church about 45 minutes away to a small little Latino Mennonite church in Orange Cove, California. Um, and you know, um, all of that, um, you know, changed my life, saved my life, I think to a great degree, um, the good times, but very, 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 um, yeah, very stressful, man. Very stressful. I don't wish it on, on anybody. Certainly not my kid. I feel like every time, like my kid goes off on a field trip or something, I like sneak a hundred dollars into his pocket and I make sure he's got the. <laughs> the newest, the newest sleeping bag, you know, because I, I don't, I just don't think poverty 
I mean, poverty traumatizes, you know, and it, it leaves a mark. It leaves yeah. a mark. You, um, you, it certainly sounds like you were dealing with a lot and, <clears throat> you know, we're, we're both in higher ed and I, I've spent all of my career working with first year students. So I've, I've here, right. You know, and, and, and it, there was a period where I was also within my role, I was also a faculty advisor. So students would come in and I'd get to know them and I'd hear, I'd hear the financial struggles. I'd hear all of these things, but here you were thousands of miles away from your community, from your home, getting phone calls from your brother, right? Loans being suspended. At any point, did you have a conversation with yourself where you're like, maybe I'm not cut out for this. Maybe I, maybe I need to go back. Did that ever cross your mind? That never crossed my mind because um, I was having too much fun in the classroom. Um, that it just that just that idea just never crossed my mind. For me, it was always, um, well, can I find another loan? Is there another place I can borrow money from? And remember, it's the '90s, so like they were giving credit cards away back yeah. then. You know, yeah. Bank of America was letting you just borrow money. Um, and after two years of school there, my last semester having to take 25 credit hours just so I could finish on time. And every semester I was maxed out on hours. I took 18 credit hours and granted my, my story is one. I mean, we were the, the dorm room that I was in, we were all struggling in our own sort of way. Mm -hmm. And you know, but I never, I never thought about giving up. I mean, it, I never thought about it, but I think it was because I had a good solid community, you know, and I fell in love with learning. If I didn't have the friends that I made there, it might've just been easier to go home, Yeah, you know, or if I wasn't doing well academically, but I knew that it was in me. Like I just, yeah. you know, um, I knew that, that it was something that I really, really enjoyed doing. And I didn't have all the perks. I didn't have the benefits that a lot of other students had. Um, I had to work all the jobs that I had to work at and do what I needed to do to, to get a little bit of money uh, and all of that. Um, but, you know, those are two of the best years of my life, two of the best years of my life, no doubt. And, and driving around in a little Mitsubishi Mighty Max, which, by the way, I got tinted windows uh, in Brownsville and uh, they, it was too dark. The tinted windows they put in, I like a torsen in Brownsville. I went and some guy put, he tinted my windows. And, uh, you know, I was driving around California for the most part with my windows rolled down so I wouldn't get pulled over, uh, even when it was cold. And then I was, a, I mean, it was that, and I was an English major, and I'll never forget, uh, Wilfred Martins was my English professor. And I remember going to go see him I was taking a class, like, I think the name of the class was like Shakespeare or something. I mean, it was a ridiculously difficult class. And um, I remember I went in um, and he was like on the phone or something. And I wanted to kind of leave him a note that I wanted to talk to him about my grammar and how I could get better. And I wrote it and I put it, I just sort of slid it. And then I kind of waited. And he's on the phone and he kind of looks at the paper and then he scratches the word grammar out and he spells it G-R-A-M-M-A-R. I had misspelled grammar. Okay. I had misspelled grammar <laughs> to the English professor 
the student that wanted help with grammar misspells it. Anyway, uh, it's a traumatic thing, man. Like I just will never, those little moments. And those yeah. were, I mean, you talk about being a faculty member. It's why, or and being a mentor, it's why mentorship means so much to me because like, I just think, I mean, maybe that's the way faculty were back in the day, but I don't think like being that hard or harsh helps, especially working class and yeah. first generation students. You know what I mean? Like that kind of yeah. intimidation yeah. scars you more than helps you. You know what I mean? And when you don't know the system, when you are non-white, when your name doesn't match up with everybody else's at the school, those little things, which might seem insignificant, they cut, man. They cut. I went with my head held. I mean, I went with, I didn't even talk to him, brother. I left, man. Had my head down and I just took off. He never brought it up. He never said, what did you come see me about? Nothing. And we just moved on. Um, wow. So, you know, mentorship, you're talking about mentorship and all that. That means the world to me, especially with students that don't feel like they fit in at a place like Texas A&M, yeah. because I see myself I see myself in them and I know that what they need more than anybody is just somebody that will express a sense of care and some idea of solidarity, you know, like that's all the professors that shaped my life. Yeah, they were brilliant, but I don't remember that. I remember that they cared about me as a human being. Right. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You um, finish up there, Fresno Pacific. And then what was next for you? So I finished there and um wait, wait, wait. Did you go back to Brownsville to be a head football coach? Be a football coach? <laughs> <laughs> is that or is that dream gone? No, that dream is still with me. That <laughs> dream is still with me. I really I wanted to um well, you know, I mean, I'm 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 dating uh Maribel. We are when I graduated, we're engaged. And or we're about to get engaged. I don't remember. But I went to go live in, a, in an apartment for the summer, the summer of 99, because I graduated college in 99. I ended up le- I left Brownsville with 12, 12 credit hours uh-huh. and I graduated in two years at Fresno Pacific. So just do the math in terms of like my summers. Yeah, that's crazy. And <laughs> my semesters. It was intense. Right. But I knew I didn't, couldn't I didn't want to borrow any money. I left with almost forty thousand dollars in debt just in two years of school. So um, I, um, which is why I believe in student debt forgiveness. And even though I've paid my loans, I wish that on nobody. Yeah. Like I, I, I the federal government should absolutely pay everybody's loans. That's my belief. I, I, I wholeheartedly believe in that. But I lived with these guys. It was great. It was a great group of guys. Uh, we were a multi-ethnic. There was a Korean guy, another Chicano guy, and Hawaiian dude. And we were in an apartment for the summer of '97. I worked. <laughs> at a hardware store again. I went back, but it wasn't Sears. It was something else. Um, One of these standalone Ace Hardware kind of stores. I did that. And then the same organization that had put together the drama team Mm -hmm, in mm -hmm. 96 was hiring in South Texas to do community work with churches to get border churches in the Valley engaged in social justice work and especially anti-racism education, not just in the Valley, but the job description said Louisiana, Mississippi, and Texas, right? Different parts of the state. Um, So I jumped on that opportunity because uh, there weren't any other takers, man, at that point. I I was working at, at Ace Hardware. I still did not think about graduate school 
I was just like, I got to get a job, man. I got to make money. Yeah. Um, Ace Hardware helped me pay the rent that summer. And then I drove back to the Valley the fall of 97 to start with Mennonite Central Committee, MCC, the organization. And I opened up an office in Edinburgh, Texas in the year 2000. And same year I got married. My wife left California and we moved. We both moved into Edinburgh. We lived right off of the square in Edinburgh. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, business 281. Yeah. Um, and we lived right off of business 281. And when I was there and I was working with the organization, um, I thought, I seriously thought this man, like this was my thinking. I thought, okay, I'm going to work with this organization for a few years, kind of make a little bit of money. I wasn't making much. I was making 20 something. I mean, it wasn't a lot, but I thought, let me get on my feet, start paying these loans, start doing something. Right. Um, plus I really liked the work. I liked that kind of engagement with race, community churches, that sort of thing. And I thought, well, I'm here. UT Pan Americans like right there. Mm-hmm. Like, let me go check the master's program because if I can get a master's degree, don't they pay you more if you're a high school coach and a teacher with a master's degree? That was my justification to go and get a master's degree. And I sign up and I do it in history. And I, they tell me you're an English major. So UTPA made me take 12 hours of undergrad history before I could get into the MA program in history at, at UTPA. Wow. So I started that in 2001. I took a class with Dr. Salmon. Do you remember Dr. Salmon in history? Dr. Salmon. Or Dr. Rocha. Do you remember Rocha? Yeah, I know. I remember Dr. Rocha. Dr. Salmon yeah. sounds familiar, but I, yeah, I do remember Dr. Rocha well. Yeah, everybody does. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but but Dr. Salmon was a small man, but just a mighty thinker, man. I mean, I took an undergraduate Mexican-American history class with him. And that class was another turning point in my journey, in my educational mm-hmm. journey. Because I knew at that point that I wanted to do one, history. Mm-hmm. That I was going to, that history is confirmed for me that history was my path and Chicano history in particular. Like that for me did it, that semester with him. He ended up becoming my thesis advisor at UT Pan American. Um, I greatly benefited from his mentorship. He was a kind and gentle soul, uh, but a harsh critic of, you know, Gringolandia and, <laughs> you know, anti, anti-Mexican anti sentiment. He was a harsh yeah. critic of it. And I learned a lot from him about grace, believe it or not. I learned a lot from him about Cause I was, I, you know, you have to imagine that I was sort of like a budding Chicano nationalist, man. Like I was like getting there. Okay. So all of these years of talking about race, I'm taking a Chicano history class. Now it's mi raza primero, the hell with everybody, you know? But when I meet Salmon, Salmon is like, he's reading my thesis and he's like, Felipe, Felipe, there was racism. I get it. You say it. Every other word is racism, this, racism, that, racism, this. <laughs> Were there other factors? Like, what about class? Did that yeah. matter to missionaries in the Valley? And what about, you know, immigration? And what about all these other things? And I was like, oh, oh, okay. All right. Well, let me think about that. And, and uh, you know, he, he would talk a lot about uh, coalition building with other racial and ethnic groups, right? And white folks and black folks and what does that mean? And how do you, how can we think about these sorts of things critically? So he was, he was the right person for me at that point in my life. Mm-hmm. I don't, I, I didn't need a kind of harsh 
Rocha approach, you know, <laughs> uh, you know, the hell with the gringo kind of thing. I didn't need that. I'm not saying that that was his philosophy necessarily, but that's what he exuded. Yeah, I was, I was, I was going to say, I would have said there's, there's, there needs to be more racism. There more, right. Yeah. Right. So, you know, anybody hearing me out there, I'm not dissing on him. I'm just saying that that's the the politics. This this is a man that was smoking in his office, man. Like I would walk in UT Panama. It's like 2003, man. This dude's smoking. Anyway, um, I am, you know, I'm with Dr. Salmon. It was the best decision. And then while I'm there, um, John Chavez, Professor John Chavez from Southern Methodist University. Somebody mm-hmm. told us we were there, right? It's like, hey, this professor is going to come. He wants to recruit PhD students. PhD. Absolutely not. Too much money. I don't even know what the hell that is. Uh, I don't have any desire to do that. Um, but I kept getting nudged. And people in seminar who had no desire to go forward would tell me they're like, I know you want to do this to get paid because you want to work at the school district. And I let me they would tell me, like, I work at the school district. You do not want to work at the school district. <laughs> You're you you've got potential, man. Like they told me, like, you could probably make it, you know. And uh John Chavez came down, talked to us from SMU. But the game changer was when Lupe San Miguel, Professor Lupe San Miguel and Professor Luis Alvarez from the University of Houston came down um to Pan American. Um a Trini Gonzalez, who is a great friend of mine. I don't know if you know Trini. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. So Trini is a great friend of mine. He was at the University of Houston at that time, maybe a fourth or fifth year graduate student at that point. He was ahead of me. I was thinking about UT Austin also. Mm-hmm. And Trini was the guy that said, nah, you don't want to go there. You don't want to go there. Right? <laughs> yeah. You don't want to go there. You want to go to Houston, University of Houston. I was like, okay, well, what about it? I've never heard of it. I know UT, Americo Paredes, and, you know, they had Neil Foley at that time. David Montejano had been there. So Trini says, let me let me get some faculty down here. So he invited and organized for Lupe and for Luis Alvarez to come down. They took us out to dinner in Reynosa. I remember I met Luis Alvarez, who teaches now at UC San Diego. He's written two great books, Chicano Historian. I respect him greatly. I remember the first time I met him, I said, oh, what year graduate student are you? Because he looks so young. I'm like, you can be that young and be faculty. Like every professor I had was like 100 years old, you know? Yeah. Um, and after that experience with them and then going to visit the University of Houston and conversations with my wife and family and all that, um, I decided to take the leap. And, and uh, you know, we moved to Houston to start graduate school in 2004 to start my Ph.D. studies. In 2004, I had written a master's thesis. This was back in the day when you ha- you could write a master's thesis that was like 300 pages and nobody, nobody, you know, said anything. It was like normal, you know, yeah. nowadays people are like a master's thesis, you know, but back then I wrote, I wrote a pretty long one, did a lot of research, a lot of oral history interviews, um, which by the way, are now at the Library of Congress for that first uh, master's thesis that I did it. I interviewed people like in La Grulla, all those little pueblitos out in West uh, out in the west end of the valley, Rio Grande, La Grulla, Sullivan City, um, because that's where a lot of the Mennonite missionaries had gone out in the 1930s out there. So I did that and I went to U of H. I got a campus visit and I'll never forget. We get a campus visit and it's Jesse Esparza, another good friend of mine, really talented scholar, gifted, uh, really smart. And he was a student at the time. He's taking us around. 
me and two other guys from Pan Am who were graduate students. And uh, Lupe San Miguel said, go do the tour. I teach a Chicano history seminar tonight. Come into the seminar, sit in, and then we'll go get dinner or something afterwards. Fantastic, man. It was like, great. We were from the Valley, us three. We had never seen a Starbucks before, okay? So we're on the campus of U of H, and there's a Starbucks, and we're like, dang, Starbucks. So we each go and get these, like, mocha frappuccino, (laughs) frappa, 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 extra whip, extra this, extra caramel. We walk in, all three of us, chonchitos. I was chubby back then, man. You know, we were all chubby. We walk in with our big frappuccinos, you know, into that seminar. It was the most embarrassing thing because everybody was very sophisticated then, right? Everybody had coffee and, you know, they're sitting down with their legs crossed and all of that. None of us could do that. We're too chubby. You can cross your legs. So, um, (laughs) but I remember being in Lupe San Miguel's class sipping on a mocha frappuccino and not just like a tall man. I mean, I said, give me the, we all three of us said, give us the large one. We were enamored. We were just like, Whoa, Starbucks. This is incredible. I mean, it was a big deal back then. (laughs) (laughs) Needless to say, I knew UH was going to be my place because not only did they care about academics and it was rigorous and all of that. And I cared about that. But there was also kind of a political edge to it. There was a sense mm-hmm. that the seminar space was a political space. Luis Alvarez and Raul Ramos always talked to us about, you know, how we do this for the community and the kind of work that we do and how this benefits the broader public. That's what I had grown up in church. Like yeah. that, you know, the, the nonprofit work that I had done in Edinburgh for all those years. And then I get to UH and they're like, we're going to put together academics with social justice. And I was like, that's exactly what I want. And I didn't want to go to SMU. I didn't want to go anywhere else. I thought, and because I didn't have a tenure track kind of idea in my head of what I wanted to do. um, You know, I I wasn't even thinking of that. I only thought about UH because I fell in love with the space kind of in the same way that I did with Fresno Pacific. I was like, this is a great place for me. UH is also a great place. I love that place. Go Cougs. I, I fell in love with Houston, the whole city, the university, the history department there. Uh, I have fond, fond memories. I want to coach high school football. <laughs> <laughs> I, and, you know, and I, and I, you know, I, I joke, but also like, I remember, God, you know, I, I graduated from Ed Cal Chelsea, like, you know, yeah. I wanted to coach high school football. <laughs> so. You guys were a powerhouse in the 90s, by the way. The yellow, you were powerhouse, brother. That yeah, is for sure, yeah. man. My my undergrad, my undergrad and my master's thesis um was about La Maquina Maria. It was oh a collection gosh. of oral histories. And so yeah, that was a lot of fun. But so yeah, you know, I, I joke, but but it's it's interesting, right? The, the 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 influences and that shape us, right? And and yeah, man, I could see myself totally doing this or totally doing that, you know. And it sounds like your story, like you said, all of these pieces, right? The church, the 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 spaces that you were able to take part in, where you could have these conversations, the social justice work, whether it was the community work, whether it was in that caravan doing the anti-racism mm-hmm. uh, troop, all of it sounds like, like you found it, like you found it all come together at U of H. So you it finish all up. came together. Yeah. You finish up and then where, where, <laughs> oh goodness, what was, man. what was next? 
I finished up in 2009, five years it took me to finish the PhD, two years of coursework, three years of dissertation and research and, and all of that. And, oh man, the dream uh, was to go back to the Valley, no more to coach football. I had kind of moved on from that primarily because I I invested a lot in this education. I need to like, <laughs> I need to kind of step it up a little bit. Yeah. I went back to the Valley and I, my dream was to teach at South Texas college at that point. I wanted to get a job there uh, or even at Pan Am if they would hire me um, and live in the Valley, barbecue every weekend, go to protest marches, raise some babies, have a family, you know, my, and my entire family's in Brownsville. I w- would have lived a great life. And then A&M puts out a job offer um, for a position, not just in 20th century history, 20th century Latino history. Um, and I remember I'm at Starbucks on 10th and Nolana. Yeah. Okay. I don't know if it's still there, if that Starbucks is still there. Um, but it was one of the, the larger ones and we yeah. would all go and, and put our laptops and stay there for 12 hours. You know what I mean? Like we'd be there todo el santo día, man. Yeah. Just <laughs> typing away, drinking coffee and having all these great conversations. Anyway, I'm there and Trini, you know, I mentioned Trini Gonzalez earlier. He's there as well. And we're talking about this job ad and Trini's like, you should apply. You should apply. And I'm like, I don't have a shot to get that job. There's no way I'm applying. He's like, just do it. Then you test the waters and yeah. you don't get it, but you know, it's a practice. Okay. Uh, I did it. <laughs> I got an interview. <laughs> uh, I don't know, man. The the American Historical Association is where all the interviews happened. And this would have been fall of 2008. My interview was in January of 2009. I go to New York City where the conference was, where we all interviewed, and I interviewed there, and then me and Trini went all over that city learning a little bit of Puerto Rican history, and I went to visit the church that got occupied in East Harlem that I wrote this book about, okay? So back then, empieza la idea about, I want to write about this church. Yeah. Um, Then I get the campus interview, uh, and I'm like you know, the biggest concern with my campus interview was that I didn't have a suit. Um, and primarily because I don't, I didn't think I could fit into a suit. I was almost 300 pounds back then. I was a big, I was big. Wow. Man. So I was like, it's not that I don't have a suit. I've got one. I just can't fit into it yeah. from high school, you know, the my prom or whatever. And so I went out and I bought a suit at JCPenney. Um, made it to the interview, uh, did the interview, didn't think I had any chance. Um, but I got the call back. Uh, I went up, I know that the people that were applying for the job were very gifted, very talented people from pretty elite institutions and whatever I did, or by the grace of God, or however it happened, I got the job. And I started at Texas A&M in the fall of 2009. So you're talking about a kid that goes from, you know, not knowing how he's going to pay that tuition bill in the fall of 97 to about 12 or so years later, teaching at a pretty prestigious research one institution. Um, And I was in complete shock. I, you know, there was a good while there, my first few years at A&M, where the story in my head was, I don't know how I got here. I don't know how this happened. Yeah. And I, 
probably shouldn't be here. Um, it has taken me years and I think I'm, I'm, I'm just got promoted a full professor. And I think I'm finally at the place where I say, I feel very comfortable. I feel like I belong, but that took a long time. And I think I know that a lot of us out there go through that. Yeah. I don't think I would have survived it without the kind of mentorship that I got. And so the theme with me is every step of the way, people in positions ahead of me um, that kind of took me under their wing and said, just calmate, calmate. You know, you're going to be all right. You're going to be okay. Don't freak out. Just do this. Do your job. Go to work every day. Write your papers, you know, publish. Um, and you're going to be fine. No promises. Nobody made any promises to me about what was happening or anything. They just said, you know, we're here. We're going to support you. Let's have a good time. Let's go get some drinks, whatever. Let's talk about it. But continue doing your work is what they always told me. And when you have community, yeah. when you have support, doing the work is possible. Yeah. I don't believe that it's possible any other way. I just don't. I just, I've seen too many people leave the profession, um, you know, because of their own sort of, um, you know, bouts with insecurity or whatever it might be. Uh, and oftentimes I think it had something to do with the fact that somewhere along the way, um, they lost their confidence. They were, you know, hurt in some way, something happened. There was a moment, you know, that, that kind of dissuaded them. Um, and, you know, I think it's hard work. I think it's mentorship. And I really believe this brother. I think it's a little bit of luck along the way, you know? Yeah. I just don't see it any other way. Yeah. You know, when I started the podcast, I started it because yeah, this is pandemic. This is my first year students coming in and the anxiety level was through the roof. And, I, and I'd already noticed it. You know, I'm listening to students. I talked to all of my students and, and I, I sensed it earlier. I sensed it, you know, years before that. But but man, in, in, in 2020, they were really vocal about it. And I remember one class where I said, um, you know, I'm teaching this first year experience course and I typically leave like a week or two off the syllabus. And I'd say, hey, I want to hear from you all. What do you all want to learn yeah. about? What are you concerned about? What do you need to know? Overwhelming majority. Can we talk about anxiety? Mm -hmm. Can we talk about um, social anxiety? Can we talk about stress? You know, so you know, digging deeper. And a lot of them are like, you know, we have early college high schools and, and, and these are wonderful things, right. That kids can take and get, you know, two years of college paid for. Right. But they're coming in and they're like, I don't know that I want to do this. I don't know that I want to do, I've got an associates in this. I don't know if I want to continue down that path or I have no idea what I want to do. Yeah. And the, right. and the, and the adults around me tell me I've got to figure it out. Right now, now we've got ninth graders, eighth right. graders. You've got to pick a designation. You've got to pick a path. And I and and so I felt almost, you know, obligated to say, look, if you're 18 and you've got it figured out, you're doing better than everybody else because nobody does. that, Right. And and so part of the podcast was actually the, the whole impetus for the podcast was to show them that nobody has a straight line. Right. I think, you know, I, I think you're, I'm, I'm, I'm into like episode 90 something now and I can count on one hand how many folks 
knew what they were going to do at 18 and did that, you know, you know, less than, than, than less than five, two or three, I think. And so it, it was just to kind of put them at ease and say, look, we don't know. We're 18. We don't know where we're going to go. We don't know what, what the future might hold for us. We don't know what the experience is, but, but keep moving forward and have exactly. a plan and find mentors right. and do. And so, so thank you. Cause I think, you know, your, your story, you absolutely right. Right. You found community and you found mentorship and you kept doing the work. And I think that's, that's so important that we continue to move forward and continue to do the work. So thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Well, thank you for having me. And I, you know, I feel a tremendous sense, um, a tremendous debt that I have to pay back to students today, you know, Mm -hmm. and um, it's why I'm so committed, or at least I try to be as committed as I can uh, to my students to be there for them to model something different for them, um, you know, to help them understand that they're not alone in this process. Um, because I'm not here without that kind of, that kind of mentorship, uh, and to be able to see now when you, when I've been in this as for 13 years, I see students that are now well on their way to their own graduate degrees that are practicing lawyers that are doing incredible work, um, in, in, in the community. And I see them now taking on that mantle of responsibility for mentorship in their own circles and in what they do. Um, you know, I'm working to fill out college applications for my son right now. Um, actually, we're all done. We did it over the summer and try to get in, try to get them in as early as possible. But I was blown away by the difficulty of that process mm-hmm. of how much is asked for. And here I am with a PhD. My wife has a PhD as well. And we were struggling with a lot of stuff on there uh, with the, the enormity of it in terms yeah. of what is required. And so to think about how working class parents, parents that are, uh, you know, that didn't go to college themselves and, and they're the, the, the students coming out of there are first gen, the difficulty of all of that, I think, highlights the real importance of the mentorships at universities, the, the people that play roles as admissions counselors, the people that play roles in high school as, you know, counselors or helping students get to college and fill out you know, college applications and all of that. We all play a role at different levels. I might be at the university, but it's all part of a bigger family here where we're trying at different places, trying to see if we can help as many students as we can. And it's great to meet somebody like you that's on this journey as well and doing it uh, in a different place than I am. Um, And, you know, I mean, I think that gives me much joy and comfort knowing that we've got great people that are doing this work across the spectrum um, either in the classroom, outside of it, whatever it may be. Um, it's always a really refreshing and wonderful thing. So thank you. Well, you know, Felipe, I know this is, uh, I'm hoping and I'll make sure this happens. This is just the first of many conversations for us. Sure. Um, before we close out any final words for our listeners out there. Well, I mean, things are, <laughs> you know, things are, are, are uh, and have been for a good while now, um, you know, very difficult. I can understand your comment about anxiety and the levels of anxiety because I feel it uh, as well. Um, I think that in terms of kind of making it through that, 
I hope that everybody out there um, works as hard as they can to push back against any desire to isolate, to push back against any desire to kind of go it alone, reach out for help, ask people, find friendships, build those friendships um, as you go about and do this work. And I just want to highlight something you mentioned earlier, too, that that part of finding community, I think another, um, you know, uh, big part of that is, you know, to make sure that um, even if you don't know what you want to do, even if you don't have it figured out, um, that that's okay. Uh, The big thing is just keep moving forward, keep dreaming, keep imagining uh, and keep setting setting those goals that you have uh, in your life. Keep doing that kind of work, even if you're not sure. Yeah. Right. Because if you would have asked me, are you on track to become a professor at a university? I There's absolutely no way that was never. Never in my mindset until I got to the University of Houston, even at Pan Am, that wasn't what my thinking yet. So. Yeah. As a matter of fact, I thought I could adjunct. You know, I was like, I'll adjunct. I'll, I'll adjunct. <laughs> I'll teach you a couple of classes at night. Yeah. It'll be great. <laughs> thank you, Jose. I appreciated this conversation. That was great to go back. Felipe, thank you. Um, this concludes another episode of the Way to College podcast. Make sure you subscribe, rate, uh, follow, and um, we'll see you next time. Thanks again. Bye-bye.